I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Editing Podcast. So this time around, we're delighted to welcome our special guest, Crystal Shelley, a copy editor, proofreader and sensitivity reader who works with self-publishing fiction authors. That's right. So Crystal also practices as a licensed clinical social worker, and she unites her love of language and social justice by providing editorial services with a focus on conscious language and representation. And that's exactly what we're going to be picking her brains about today. So hello, Crystal. Hi. It's so lovely to have you here. I know. I'm so excited to be here. I'm such a big fan of your podcast. So thank you. Oh, Oh, you're very welcome. That's lovely, (laughs) Crystal. Thank you. Crystal, I think we should start right at the very beginning for our listeners. Um, Could you explain to them what sensitivity reading is? Yes. So sensitivity reading is a service that evaluates the representation of identities or experiences. Usually when a writer doesn't have those identities or experiences, but they're writing about them. So for example, like if a non-disabled writer writes a character who is disabled, then they might hire a sensitivity reader with that disability to get feedback on their portrayal. So what types of topics do people read for when they're sensitivity reading, Crystal? Most of the time, um, people will read for demographic categories like race, gender, sexual orientation, or disability. Um, Usually sensitivity reads are recommended when a writer is writing about marginalized identities that they don't share. Mm -hmm. But it's also out, it can be also outside of demographic categories like experiences that might be hard to really capture if you haven't been through them before, like being adopted or being a caregiver, or um, some sensitivity readers read for groups with strong cultures that are outside of ethnic groups, like military culture or fandom culture. So sensitivity readers can cover a vast number of topics. I have to say that's a lot broader than I realized. Yeah, that is really broad. So I'm assuming that, yeah, you can't just assume that a sensitivity reader would be suitable for everything. So um, what topics do you read for, Crystal? I read for Chinese and Taiwanese culture, Mm -hmm. as well as the experiences of being Asian American, Mm -hmm. um, women's issues, ageism, Alzheimer's and dementia and hospice, as well as online gaming culture. So some of those, as you can probably guess, are based on my personal identities, Mm -hmm. but some of them are based on my professional experiences as a social worker. So again, very Mm. broad categories, but what I read for is gonna be very different from what someone else reads for. And that's really good for someone to think about, actually, if a listener's thinking, um, if if they're perhaps an editor already and they're thinking about moving into this field, you know, they might not have considered using their background experiences, their career experiences, um, you know, that there is opportunities there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what can you tell us a little bit about the, the sensitivity reading process and what that looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I can only speak for, for my own process, but I mm-hmm. think it's pretty similar across the board. And, and I compare it to the freelance editing process, they, they look pretty similar. And so usually a writer will decide that they 
need a sensitivity reader. So they'll search for one um, who reads for the topic that they need, and then they'll contact them. You know, for me, usually people find me through my website or on social media. Mm -hmm. So I list what topics I read for, and they can contact me if it seems like you know, if I read for something they need. And so they send me a message and we figure out if, if I'm going to be the right fit. And uh, usually that's based on the topic that they need the sensitivity read for, because really the sensitivity reader should match the identities or experiences as closely as possible. Mm. And so we'll talk and we'll figure out if it's a right fit based on that topic and the, the price and the timeline. And if so, then they'll hire me, I'll do the sensitivity read of the manuscript, and then I'll offer feedback. Yeah. And, and does that come in report form or? Um, yeah. Uh, so, is, or might you do it over the phone? Or again, is that a personal thing? Yeah, every sensitivity reader is going to have their own process. But I think it's from, from those I've talked to, it, it sounds like a lot of us have a similar format of our with our feedback so i do both a sensitivity reading report and manuscript comments so right. i don't okay. make direct changes to the manuscript but um yeah so in the sensitivity reading report i i give feedback at the story level so i'll usually because i'm usually doing it for fiction so i'm looking at the plot the characters the settings and the narrative lens, but through the the lens of the topic that I'm reading for, mm. um, and then so so that I summarize in a report to them, and then in the manuscript comments I'll offer feedback on the words and the language that they use in their manuscript, mm -hmm. and you know offer suggestions or alternatives or tell them you know you got this spot on so great job yeah right and and crystal can i ask at what point in the writing and editing process would you advise is the best point to have a sensitivity reader look at material or does it or does that depend on what's being written yeah i mean i recommend really as, as soon as the writer knows that they might need a sensitivity reader it, it's good to start that process because if the writer goes through a developmental edit and then a copy edit and hopefully not a proofread yeah and then yeah. They, yeah. and then they hire a sensitivity reader and that reader offers feedback that says they need to make these sweeping changes and revisions to their manuscript, mm. then that author has potentially spent all that time, that money, only to have to undo it and, and redo it. So really, as, as soon as the writer has an idea, you know, maybe they've, they do beta reading, maybe a developmental editor, because the writer may also may not think that they need a sensitivity read so yeah, yeah that's good what point. I was about to ask is you know does it must happen I, I would imagine particularly perhaps with um independent authors who are self-publishing where they, they either have no idea that such a thing exists or they don't they, they haven't looked at their own writing through that lens and it's only when somebody outside perhaps like a it might even be a copy editor is the first person that's looked at it um and then they're they're told that they might need one do, do you find most people are receptive to that 
in the the authors I've worked with, I mean, it, it's been a mix. I mean, yeah. they've all been receptive to it, but I've had authors say, you know, I want to make sure that I got this representation right, which is mm -hmm. why I, I want to hire you. Or they said, oh, this person, this editor or this friend of mine read my manuscript and they recommended it or, mm -hmm. a, or they're being traditionally published and the publisher is the one who has asked that they get right. a sensitivity read. Right. So it, it really depends, but I've been fortunate to work with a lot of writers who have been open to the idea and open to the feedback. And that, that's really interesting. Um, I'm also wondering if a book or a piece of writing might need multiple sensitivity reads if there's possibly a situation where one sensitive sensitivity reader can't address all the potential mm. issues. If you have you come across that situation at all? Yeah. So I mean, really because like I talked about, sensitivity reads can be done for so many different topics yeah. and identities. Mm -hmm. Manuscripts can absolutely benefit from multiple sensitivity readers who can cover all the bases. Or sometimes especially when a topic is such a central and integral part to a plot or the story, then some writers may want to hire multiple sensitivity readers who read for the same topic, but that way they can get different perspectives oh, on how right. they're handling it. Right. And if you've got multiple characters with different identities, maybe some of them marginalized, maybe some of them not, but you know, if it's quite a complex narrative, um, that might be essential. One, one could imagine I mean otherwise it could be just a job half done I guess you know like right. say if, mm -hmm. if, if you had a, a, a if you were reading for um sensitivity with a a car in relation to uh a character with the characteristics that, that that you offer the read for but there's other characters in the books who are very have very different identities then you're you're do you know what I mean you're going to be kind of like it's going to be half of the half of the job right yeah so there have been times where when writers have approached me they've told me what they're wanting me to read for and depending on that conversation sometimes I'll say yes I can do that yeah but it sounds like you have some other yeah identities or you know not that I've really had this happen, but you know, I've kind of seen it before where they may approach me to read, you know, I read for Chinese and Taiwanese culture, but they may have characters who are Korean or Japanese or yeah. Vietnamese. And I have to be explicit, like, okay, I can read for specific Chinese culture, but not for these other ones. So yeah. You know? and, or, and maybe that character's a woman, but that's only half the story. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah. And um. Denise, sorry, I heard you. Did you want yeah, to come I in? Yeah, I took a breath. I was going to say something. Well, I, was just, I was just going to say um, that actually could get pretty expensive for an author, couldn't it? You know, if you're adding in potentially multiple sensitivity reads um, for a, a book and they, they've already got to factor in perhaps several different editing rounds, depending on um, what sort of intervention their book reads uh, uh, requires. So... I suppose that's something that a writer should really be thinking about quite early in the process about just the, the fact of having to budget for something like this as well. Right, yeah, it, depending on how many readers they, they 
need to hire, then mm -hmm. that definitely would be a consideration. Um, and you know, there are readers who may be able to cover multiple topics. I think, yeah. you know, of course that would, that would be nice. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah. And so reader, or sorry, writers have to prioritize, you know, maybe there's this main character and that's the one they need the sensitivity read for. Yeah. Of course, if they have supporting characters that play a role, they may still want to consider that, but depending on time and budget. So, so writers just have to really think about what, what their priorities are and, and yeah. how they want to continue in that process. Mm. That's the same with all editing, isn't it? I think that's yep. one of the biggest challenges for the independent author. It's it's we've got a budget, um, that, you know, for a lot that it's not a bottomless pit, and they have to make choices about where that investment's going to be. Because, mm -hmm. but I, I do sort of see this has to. It, it is essential that this comes earlier rather than later in the process. Otherwise, as you said, I mean, you could just end up getting investing huge amounts of money in line work and then having to undo it all because it's not written in a way that's sensitive to those identities right and and that's why i i like to talk to even other editors who aren't necessarily doing sensitivity reading but they're developmental editors or line editors who, and, and encouraging them to be on the lookout for potential representation concerns mm. and to say something to the author and to say hey i, I noticed that this is a you know, big part of your story. Have you, you know, are you of this identity? Have you considered or mm. heard of a sensitivity read? And really all of us, I think, can play a part in that process of educating writers and telling them about this service and hopefully mm. having them start it earlier rather than later. I think that's a really good point about Chris raising awareness. Sorry, sorry, Louise. Yeah. No, no, yeah. go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, just I think it's a really good point about raising awareness because I think a, a lot of writers don't know about this and are maybe mm. reluctant to perhaps are they either they either write about um, characters and identities that they're not familiar with and don't think anything of it, or alternatively they're reluctant to write about characters that they don't and identities they don't have experience mm. of in case they um, cause offence and they're maybe not aware mm -hmm. that. This is, an action, this is an option that's open to them. And and I think a lot of people don't even necessarily, coming back to that awareness thing, mm -hmm. they don't realise that this kind of editorial service is available. Yeah. But I, mean, I mm -hmm. think people are starting, you know, certainly there's been lots more talk within our industry in the last few years about representation and identity, but mm -hmm. we're in the world of words. This is our job to think about this stuff. Um, and yes, it's been, it, there is, it's, it's been much more public recently, but very recently, I think, um, are, are people really starting to think very, very, very much more carefully than ha they have done in the past about, about this kind of thing. And so there may be authors in, in the past, particularly, who just weren't aware that this was, uh, an op you know, and that this kind of service was available to help them make the very best and representative characters in the books that they can. So, right. um, Crystal, how, how do you become... A sensitivity reader? Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, there's no specific training to becoming a sensitivity reader. Um, it, really, anyone can offer this service. And it's important to keep in mind that many sensitivity readers are not editors. There are many who are, and they're 
-hmm. are many editors Mm -hmm. who do offer this service, but not everyone is. Um, Some are passionate readers who have certain identities and they want to help writers get this right. Mm -hmm. So if someone wants to become a sensitivity reader, they would want to identify what topics they can read for, you know, what they feel like they can speak to as far as accuracy and representation. And then determine what their process is as far as engaging clients, doing the actual read and offering that feedback and, you know, setting their price, marketing themselves, much like what a freelance editor would have to do. Yeah. 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 Um, Crystal, can I just go um, on to think a little bit about um, the concerns that some authors might have about hiring and working with a sensitivity reader? Um, because there may be um, they may be worried or concerned about about feeling um, that they're being censored or that they might mm-hmm. have their book pulled. Um, so how how do you go about addressing those concerns? Yes, that's a great question because that is the biggest barrier I see to writers engaging sensitivity readers is this mm-hmm. idea of that it's censorship. Now I like to frame it as sensitivity readers are there to offer feedback just as beta readers and editors do. So Mm -hmm. writers have full control over what they do with that feedback. They can make changes or they can choose to completely ignore it. And the Mm -hmm. sensitivity reader can't force a writer to make a change. Mm -hmm. But there are times where publishers will choose to pull a book or cancel a contract because of representation concerns and then potential backlash. So it's a financial decision on their part. So some people may see that as cancel culture or censorship, Mm -hmm. but a writer can still find other avenues of publishing, including Mm self-publishing. So it's, it's, it's a very fraught and controversial topic because of these reasons. But I think that, you know, it's good for writers to consider what a sensitivity reader is saying and why they're making the recommendations they are. Because Mm, even if the writer doesn't see an issue with how they've presented something, that doesn't mean it's not harmful. Yeah. And And that comes back to like, who are you writing for? I mean, there will be some authors who think I'm writing this and I'm writing it for me and Mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody else thinks, but actually a lot of authors want to sell books. And that means, that means thinking about, how their readers are going to feel um even if it's just some of their readers and and so it's it's that's why i really like the fact that you're talking about this um to to people like us because it's that awareness thing it's about you know because it, it it may be that a lot of people feel um hesitation because they don't understand enough about it they they, mm-hmm. they don't understand what they can they can they're, they're thinking you know it can make them feel defensive rather than them seeing this as an opportunity to work with a sensitivity reader means opening your mind a bit and maybe sort of things trying to see something through someone else's lens given that you've chosen to write about a character with that lens it's the least you can do <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great way to put it Crystal, um, you you mentioned that a lot of the um, sensitivity reading you do is is for fiction, um, and uh, Louise is a fiction editor, but I I only work on nonfiction. And mm. do, do you feel that there's a place for sensitivity reading in nonfiction too? I do. I don't have as much experience in in that realm, but sensitivity reading can be used for 
any type of writing where someone is writing outside their identities. Mm -hmm. So um, in memoirs, this can look like Mm -hmm. assessing the narrative lens or how the writer discusses other groups. Yeah. Or I've done sensitivity reading for textbooks to evaluate whether harmful language was used in relation to a topic that I read for, such as, you know, when textbooks have their like case studies. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of textbook providers are trying to be more diverse and inclusive in mm-hmm. their examples. But depending on who's writing it, there could be potential harmful language use or stereotypes so Uh I think there's a place for it really with any type of language and writing yeah I I work um that's a really good point I work a lot in um ELT English language teaching Mm -hmm. materials Mm -hmm. I work a lot of textbooks and workbooks and things like that and there's a lot of discussion around um equality and diversity and inclusion um, and you know even even at the copy edit stage you're quite often having to flag up issues and there's mm-hmm. whole, um, like you say in terms of representation of um, different cultures and um, you know family setups and things like that but very often that is dictated to um, by the market that these are being written for and uh, very often if you're right if you're working on a book that's destined for um, a, you know a Middle Eastern market there'll be quite a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't include mm-hmm. um, because of the the cultural and religious um, um, viewpoints in those countries so the publishers have to be very careful about those sorts of things so there's a big there is a big crossover there with you know sensitivity and culture and um, you know diversity and inclusion that you have it's not just about what's in the book but who's who's receiving it and who's going to be using it at the other end and, mm-hmm. and bit, the bottom line is will it sell will it be will it be adopted by the ministries in these countries you know because oh. if if it if it doesn't reflect their lived experiences um they won't take them on denise yeah. can i ask you something um mm-hmm. uh do, do you know if, if have any of the publishers you worked for created like different versions so you might have a textbook that's designed yeah. to do x and th- there'll be a version for the middle eastern market and Absolutely. then a version for the yeah. main, you know european yeah oh. yeah I've, I've worked on books where it's been it's you know it's a mainstream publisher and it's one of their big sellers but it's being adapted for a specific market mm. yeah so mm. they will um either remove materials or um include materials or you know maybe shift the focus of um uh, well obviously a lot of the you know they might change the photography in it and, and the, yeah. the artwork and that sort of thing and mm. you know things maybe have to be excluded like um dice games and stuff like that because that's yeah. gam- that's gambling yeah. so you yeah. can have that that sort of thing but yeah adaptation adaptation's a big thing yeah mm. that, that killed the conversation so, um, my next question <laughs> 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 yeah well I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to talk to Crystal again so there you Carry go on. <laughs> so Crystal um can you give um listeners any tips about how authors could go out go about finding sensitivity readers mm-hmm. I mean what yeah, kind so... of things should they be searching for and um I mean obviously they can go to Google but mm-hmm. it, it maybe it's the search terms and all that or or maybe there are directories anyway I'll, I'll go <laughs> Yeah, there there are some directories. I haven't found too many out there, but they do exist. So there's the editors of color database, which Uh is, you know, is it's only for or only has editors who uh, 
of color, <laughs> yeah. as the name yeah. implies. Yeah. But yeah. there is it's a great a, name. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it there, says on the tin. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a filter where someone can search for an, a sensitivity reader specifically because, you know, like I, as someone in the database, can choose what services I provide mm-hmm. and then it can filter by that. Um, there Also, through the EFA, the Editorial Freelancers Association, there is kind of a similar thing where where freelancers can choose that they do sensitivity reading. So someone who's looking for a sensitivity reader can search the EFA database and Mm -hmm. filter by that. I'm also part of a Facebook group called Binders Full of Sensitivity Readers, where a writer can actually submit a request for a sensitivity reader through a Google form that they have. Mm -hmm. And then it gets sent to its members, which has a very large member base. Mm -hmm. So that can capture a lot of people. But honestly, like you said, a Google search can yield (laughs) great results. Often, if you just search, you know, sensitivity read and topic, Mm -hmm. and, and the topic you're looking for, then that'll pop up with individuals websites yeah and crystal when somebody maybe shortlists a few sensitivity readers that they've either found through mr google or through one of the directories are there any key questions that you would advise them to ask the sensitivity readers are there any sort of things that they really need to make sure they've established with them um what sort of conversations do you have with your prospective clients I think the biggest question is that idea of being the right fit, mm-hmm. just because a lot of times going into it, writers may have a very vague idea of what a sensitivity reader is and what they can do, or they may not understand that some identities are not interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And so having the conversation about what they're looking for, what the manuscript contains and being upfront about that so that the sensitivity reader can really suss out whether they will be the right person who can read for those topics. And I would caution writers with, you know, if, if they talk to someone and, and they say that they can represent an entire group or a demographic or that they'll catch everything. I mean, I don't know that people actually say that, mm-hmm. but it's it's a misconception that some people have going into that process of, oh, if I hire a mm. sensitivity reader, then they'll be able to sign off on my project. That means no one can get offended by it or will criticize it. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. And and so I I would be oh you know, just beware of over promising by sensitivity readers again I don't know that that actually happens but I think there might be people out there who feel that they can speak for entire groups Mm -hmm. which isn't it's tempting isn't it I can see how that might happen because I think sometimes you know you do you know like I could say well I'm a woman and I've read such and such Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that I represent all white women or all white women or all white British women you know because Mm -hmm. because people are different and Mm -hmm. and so I I think that's a really good point that we do have to be careful about the degree to which we make promises about representing people Mm -hmm. because there are always going to be limitations with it Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's also interesting that idea of somebody a writer perhaps thinking that if they hire a sensitivity reader then yeah. that that's, Job done. 
it's a box ticked, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? You, you know, and, Pop and you. That, that's yeah. all right. Crystals will <laughs> it all out. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will shout at me. <laughs> right. That is a very big misconception out there. Mm. And, and honestly, that is why I think some writers do hire sensitivity readers is to be able to say, okay, I've, I've checked that box. Yeah. I can move on and my story's good. You know, the, the ideal reason why I hope writers hire sensitivity readers is to try to get that representation right. But I, <laughs> I think there are times where it's just like, okay, I, I've done my due diligence and can publish like, this now. Like a proofread, like, oh, it's been through a proofread, so it's bound to be perfect now. And mm -hmm. actually, you know, that's... <laughs> Yeah, but not always the case. Yeah, but a, a proofreader will do their best to find everything. But we're human beings, aren't we? And so ultimately, the responsibility does always still lie with the author. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think people should only write what they know? That's She's a laughing. great question. <laughs> I am laughing because so I actually wrote a two-part blog post about this. Oh, did you? Right, um, I did. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, because there's no right answer, mm -hmm. but I actually, I think I, in there, I specifically say there's the advice of write what you know, but what does that look like when it comes to identities? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think that anyone should be told that they should never write outside mm -hmm. their identities, write what they don't know, because it can be done right and it can be done well, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of work that has to be done mm. to get it right when, when you're a writer who's writing about marginalized identities that you don't share. Yeah. Like there are a lot of question there, questions there, particularly, you know, why do you want to tell this story? Why do you feel like it's, it is yours to tell? Are, you know, are there other options that may serve the same purpose without potentially know shredding into hmm. scary waters but yeah so I, I I'm not going to say no you should never do it but there's also the own voices movement that shows the power of when marginalized writers write characters who share their identities and what that looks like and, and how empowering and validating and validating that can be mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah. A, there's a balance. <laughs> there's I was a at a seminar, um, a, a lecture um, a couple of years ago. It was part of the Norwich um, Arts Festival thing. And somebody in the audience asked the commentator and um, journalist and author, Tom Shakespeare, who's who has a wheelchair. He's in a wheelchair. And um, he, uh, he was asked um, that very question. And his response is pretty much the same. Um, he would never ever tell anybody that they shouldn't write um, about achondroplasia, which he has, and or about being in a wheelchair just because they that that's not part of their identity. But he said, for goodness sake, come speak to someone like me first. Just ask me, you know, just just so that just have a just just do me have the decency to at least learn and find out rather mm -hmm. than hashing it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and I yeah. think that sort of from a, a it's, it's just you know it's just common it starts with courtesy yeah. I think I, um, sorry no no go ahead 
I would just, it's a sort of tangential thing, but Stephen King says a similar thing about writing about murder and stuff like that. He said, well, I've never murdered somebody, but I've done my research, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> you, you, if you want to put it across... Hopefully not practical. Way, no, he hasn't taken out, you know, <laughs> done lessons or whatever, but, you know... If you want to get it across in an authentic way, you need to do your research, don't you? Yeah, yeah you really do. Yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. it's it's even more challenging, especially with like um, with writing about marginalized identities, because writers can do all the research they can about culture and experience, but unless someone's actually been in those shoes and and experienced the systemic yeah policies and discrimination and things like that, like. Yeah, how it feels, yes. how it feels. Yeah. That's the difference yeah. between reading a textbook and actually, but but I guess that's sort of, it, it, I know that I think it was David Balducci, the thriller writer said the same thing. Like he always goes and he doesn't just like read books about when he's trying to find out about police procedure. He goes and talk to, talks to police mm -hmm. officers so that he can understand how it feels to be an FBI agent or whatever. And and obviously that's not as serious um, because you're not talking about, you're talking about maybe the difference between writing a, an authentic story and an inauthentic one. Whereas what we're talking about here is, is that plus harm, the potential mm -hmm. of harm. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but, but it is still essentially boiling down to that idea of how does it feel? Mm -hmm. How does it feel? And that's what I think that someone who does who does offers the service you offer can help a, an author bridge that gap. But yeah, I mean, it is it is so important. I think, especially as editors, and that's why. So I did an Aces mm -hmm. presentation a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and and originally the prompt was like, oh, just we want it to be about sensitivity reading, but it was up to me what direction it would go in. Mm -hmm. So I consciously chose to make half of it about sensitivity reading and the other half of it about just how all editors can have these types of conversations. Because even Denise, your example, like mm. with Scottish language and culture, even if you're not doing a sensitivity read, you are still someone who is an expert on that. So if you mm. saw inauthenticity, mm. inauthenticity, authentic representations. Mm. I don't know what that, what word that was. But, um, Inauthenticity, you, saw, you nearly yeah. had it. It just kind of got lost. <laughs> um, but like you as a human being can offer feedback to your writers when you're editing, if, yeah. if that's the realm it falls into and you yeah. notice that. Because mm -hmm. I see all of us as preliminary readers. So if we see it, someone else is going to see it. So we may as well catch it before publication. Yeah. And that way the writers can. That's a really good yeah. point, you know, isn't it? Because all editors can be... I don't know what it is to be Taiwanese, but I, I might have an idea that something's potentially offensive. So I could say mm -hmm. to someone... Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to like check out Crystal or, you know, or whatever, whatever identity was in question. There's nothing to stop any editor taking on that preliminary role. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. I, I think for some editors that I've talked to or seen them talking about, I, I think it, there can be a struggle of like, what's my role? Should I stay in my lane? What am I being paid for? And, and what should I be doing versus... Mm. If I step outside of this, am I going to upset the client? Am I going to offend them? Are they not going to want to work with me anymore? Which I think they're valid concerns. Mm. At the same time, it's, you know, what is my due diligence mm. as 
a language expert that the writer is turning to for feedback yeah. to say something if I notice something that could mm. potentially harm readers or damage their the writer's reputation mm. or their financial viability. So it's all and, and it's part of an editor's, I guess, their journey, the journey that we all have to learn of learning to query well, isn't it? And I mean, that's just <laughs> that 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 crosses the whole board. That that thing of like, how do I convey this concern I have in a way that doesn't make me feel like that isn't going to make them feel like they're being ticked off or mm-hmm. um, yeah. um, patronized or, or um, attacked. Because mm-hmm. that's the surest way to stop someone thinking about the thing you want to think about them to think about if you're if you come across as a bit grumpy (laughs) yeah there's a big difference between saying you're racist because you said this versus yeah you may want to consider how readers may (laughs) exactly yeah (laughs) crystal what was the name of that facebook group i need to put that in the show notes binders Binders full of sensitivity readers it's a play on, I think it was when Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012. Oh, and he made a, I'm pretty sure it was Mitt Romney, when uh-huh. he made a comment that was lambasted. Oh, right. right. <laughs> but he had binders full of women, I think. Oh, gosh, really? Ugh. Yeah, so. Yeah. A bit I don't think it was meant in like a bad. I think it, it, it often mis- isn't, isn't it? It often isn't. But you know, but it, yuck. <laughs> yes, it was Mitt Romney in 2012 in a debate. He said, uh, "said he used a phrase in response to a question about pay equity, referring to ring binders with met resumes of female job applicants." But he said he had binders full of women. So oh, gosh. it spawned a lot of. <laughs> binders full of sensitivity readers so i'm gonna just find that now so i can put a link in oh my god yeah. the, you know when you type in binders into facebook the first thing that comes up with is binders full of women <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious it's actually only sensitivity readers who are of marginalized genders so right. it's only women only trans mm-hmm. folks okay. only non-binary Mm-hmm. not that i i don't know that it would matter to writers that that's the case but but it so basically no cisgender men are part of that group right okay then crystal i think we've covered a lot of ground here actually <laughs> <laughs> I've, yeah i've really um it's made me think an awful lot more about the breadth and depth of mm. sensitivity reading about just how much potentially is involved in it so thank you so much for that it's been really lovely to have you on the podcast it really has I feel like I've learned so much but I feel like we've just scratched the surface but it's <laughs> it's a really really good surface to scratch and maybe you can come back another time and we can dig into some of the nitty-gritty a bit more so, I would love to <laughs> that would be great so where can people get in touch with you yes so my website is rabbitwiththeredpen.com and Again, on there, I list what topics I read for as far as sensitivity reading goes, and it's got my email and contact information. I am on Twitter and Instagram as well, at Red Pen Rabbit. I think Such that's a lovely, a lovely name. name. Yes. <laughs> it is, isn't Thank it? You. Yeah. Where does it come from? Is there a story behind it? Yeah. So when I started my freelance business, I had no idea what to call it, um, but I knew I wanted, or I didn't know right off the bat, but 
as I was thinking about names and logos and branding, I knew that I wanted to make my logo a rabbit holding a red pen because the, uh, the rabbit is my Chinese zodiac. Oh, and right. it's how oh. I've always represented myself. Like when I was a kid, I would draw a rabbit to represent myself. Yeah. So, so I was like, oh, I want to make that my logo. And it just kept sticking with me, like that idea of a rabbit with a red pen. And I'm like, I will just make that my name. And it's true to myself. And it's a little bit of editing, a little bit of my culture. And there we I go. love That's brand great. names with great, great, yeah. fantastic stories like that. <laughs> so personal as well. That's really brilliant. That's lovely. Thank you. Great. So that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening to the Editing Podcast. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you prefer. She's been Louise. And she's been Denise. And she's been Crystal. Thanks so much. Join us again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.